Our first speaker is Pablo Hendrick, who is a senior researcher on trade and development at the North-South Institute. He works on issues of political economy and the relationship between trade and finance. His regional expertise is, on, is in Latin America and East Asia. Recently, he's been involved in projects, um, uh, this most recently on BRICS strategies at the WTO in a global crisis. That's this year's work. And then uh, over the last couple of years, he's been working on policy responses to unfettered finance. And I think we're going to hear a bit about that project today. So without uh, further comment, I'd like to uh, welcome Pablo. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to be uh, talking about um, the impact of, of the crisis on low-income countries and what does that tell us about what policy responses we should have in order to deal with unfettered finance and also with, with trade linkages and, and uh, foreign direct investment linkages and even remittances linkages that connect the north and the south of, of the world, particularly the south that composes low-income countries. And uh, I will go briefly over a few uh, issues just to uh, make a memory exercise uh, with all of us together. And then I will address each one of the channels through which this international crisis has affected low-income countries. So this is not a, a reading contest, a fast reading contest, but uh, uh, you can see <clears throat> just a cursory glance at, at the names of these countries. And they are in countries that we associate with, with very low incomes, with very high levels of vulnerability and, and poverty. Uh, at the same time, you should keep in mind that they are a very large part of humanity. So one billion people live in these 43 countries. And he has a very, very small GDP. It's just a GDP of the size of, of Canada. And he has a fairly small state as, as a group. And he was already in a situation in which he had a deficit in his current account, which means that he dependent on, on foreign finance to, to cover his needs. It's a very open part of the world in terms of trade to, to the rest of the world economy, even though there are different ways in to calculate this and we can argue about the validity of this. And they are pretty much the largest aid recipients. Um, so how has the crisis affected this group of 43 countries? Well exports and basically what they sell to the world to try to get an income to pay for the imports and, uh, and to have a surplus that they could hopefully invest in their own domestic economies is down by 30% and that is by July 2009 and they have a worse trade balance which is one of the main reasons why they depend on foreign finance. Also the remittances are, are down um, are down by at least 10%. And that is because a lot of their population that is working abroad is working in sectors that have been very much affected by the global crisis, such as construction and, um, and services and, and retails. And they, they have been very often targeted by, by deportations, uh, not only in northern countries, but also in other southern countries where people from low-income countries go. Um, FDI inflows, uh, which is supposed to be one of the less volatile 
flows of income uh, for low-income countries, and he had been um, promoted as, as the most sure way uh, for them to integrate successfully into the global economy, and successfully not for the global economy, but for themselves. Uh, it's down by 15%. Uh, which is more than 50, uh, by 15 billion, which is more than 50%. While aid, at least in terms of commitments and, and the little that we know in terms of uh, disbursements, has remained constant around 45 billion. So those are the numbers, but in terms of effects on people, yeah, out of a 1 billion people population, 100 million more has fallen into poverty. And it's not that they began with a low level of poverty. And it's poverty uh, measured in, the more, in one of the most measly ways I've seen, such as $1.25 per day. Uh, it's also fall in average per, per capita income, which is different from poverty. It's not that the number of poor is growing, and it's growing extremely fast, but it's also that pretty much everyone, on average, is getting poorer. So you have worsening social indicators in public health, public education, public security because of rising fiscal deficits. A lot of the governments of these countries depend very much on, on international trade and also on, on receipts from uh, foreign direct investment and short-term capital flows to finance their, their fiscal uh, activities. And, uh, and as you, as you know, from, from Canada, from the United States, from, from Europe, um, states have been all over the world under a huge pressure to um, increase their expenditures on, on infrastructure, on the you know, very, very short-term uh, job generation schemes. And naturally, what suffers have been other uh, constant expenditures, such as the ones on, on health, education, and public security. Unsurprisingly, this has contributed to increased um, a political instability and, and rising levels of violence. Um, so what can be done? There are many things that, that could be said uh, on what can be done. However, just by looking at the transmission mechanisms and trying to incorporate a notion uh, that often in the, in the North and uh, in the discussions on how to help the South seems to be a bit absent or, or not, or, or suffering from attention deficit disorder, is that the, the crisis have very significant effects and the crisis continuously arise. It might be global, it might be regional, it might be national, but crisis is a way of life in the South. So, without uh, any further, I have disaggregated the recommendations and that we heard in the, in the different workshops that we have done uh, through the North-South Institute um, in, uh, in New York and uh, in Geneva and <clears throat> also in a shorter meeting in Ottawa. Uh, what can be done for low-income countries? Well, in the short term, we should protect them against the protectionism of the North, but also of the more of the less poor South, the middle-income countries and the upper-middle-income countries. Um, we have to maintain uh, multilateral development banks trade financing. Just because a lot of the, the, the bailout packages that have been disbursed and are being disbursed in the North have a very strong component in facilitating financing for businesses that very often compete 
with businesses from the south. So this is different than just giving emergency trade financing so that the exports from, this, from low income countries do not collapse. Yes, they are not collapsing at the same rate, but they are at a much lower base than they were before. And they still need that help. They shouldn't be unplugged from that little help they have been receiving. Also, we should support them in WTO disputes and negotiations. A lot of the disputes that get most of the press are the disputes that target uh, developed countries, and uh, particularly the, the very big ones between the EU and the US. Actually, a rising number of disputes is targeting low-income countries and the policies that they have in order to promote trade or in order to reduce the effects of, of having pretty much unleashed free trade on their domestic economies and now facing a crisis. Furthermore, the Doha development run is still going on, is still not close. There are still possibilities for low-income countries to obtain a better deal than the one that they have been likely to get by July 2008. In terms of midterm, well, you know, we are all pretty familiar now, thanks to this crisis, with the concept of hedging. Uh, I think one of the things that could be done is to help low-income countries diversify more in terms of products and destinations. Very much their fate in this crisis in terms of trade has depended on their export composition. And if they were exporting minerals or fuels, then they went through hell in the first quarter of their year. And if they were exporting uh, textiles and other manufactured commodities, they went through a more um, gentler hell in the first two quarters of the year. But the problem remains the same. If 80% of what you export is one sort of commodity and you export most of it to one or two markets, such as, such as is the case of even quite large low-income countries such as Vietnam or Bangladesh, then you end up very much depending on the adjustment that they, those northern economies are going through, either in terms of quantities or, or prices. <clears throat> Another thing that must be must be um, contained is the speculation on commodity prices. Uh, as you know, most of the contracts that are exchanged today and every single day on commodity markets have absolutely nothing to do with buying or selling minerals or fuels or, or grains. <clears throat> Furthermore, in terms of long term, I think a lot of the discussion, both from, from the right and from the left, has to, has to shaken up a bit and, uh, and understand that states in the South remain central if we're going to have any kind of national strategy in low-income countries so that they can channel the gains from trade into mobilizing their domestic resources. <clears throat> what can be done in FDI? Well, FDI has had a very huge shortfall, and that very much depends on trade and depends on the prices of commodities. Um, I think northern countries, and also some of the southern ones, where most of the FDI into low-income countries goes, have to take responsibility for that. And that has to be reflected in aid commitments. So every time we see that a Canadian mining company you know, shuts down an investment that was worth $2 billion and it was worth 5,000 jobs in Mozambique or in Madagascar or in Bolivia, then aid should follow that. 
We also have to pressure MNCs to review withdrawals. A lot of the withdrawals are very much in, according to a logic of commodity speculation. They're very much according to a logic of merger and acquisitions that completely escapes the possibilities of low-income countries where these multinational companies operate. But they do not escape our capacity to influence those multinational companies. If they cannot be influenced in the country of origin, where could they? In terms of midterm, we have to increase the policy space. We have to review the trade-related um, investment measures. Basically, delinked uh, foreign investment from the rest of the domestic economy in low-income countries. We have to stop selling corporate social responsibility as a, as a substitute. We have to revise bilateral investment treaties. And you know, the problem with bilateral investment treaties and with the, w, with the with World Bank Court for Investments is that they are very much, uh, five minutes left, and uh, five? They're very much um, a problem that anchors uh, a particular situation in the past, and a past that often has nothing to do with the present or with the likely future. An example is that an investment is made in a country such as Ecuador on the assumption that the situation of Ecuador and the situation of oil, the situation of a certain mineral is going to be at a certain price level. And then when Ecuador needs more fiscal income and raises the taxes on that, on that foreign investor, the foreign investor has every possibility of taking Ecuador to court, to the World Bank court, <clears throat> and, uh, and actually get compensation. So, you know, if you're an Equatorian firm, you do not have that privilege. Actually, if you fall, for those of you who are not from Ottawa, and you fall into one of our famous potholes, you will have absolutely no chance to take our municipality to court. However, if you were a firm, and the municipality raised your taxes, you would have every chance to do that, even from abroad. So we're basically putting firms ahead of individuals. And yes, you know, I can be not that concerned. After all, I do live in Canada. But if I live in Mozambique, the situation is rather different. So in terms of long term, FDI has to, has to create, has to contribute to the creation of entrepreneurial and technical capacities in those countries. There is something that can be obtained. If you look at the history of Canada, a lot of the development that was extracted was extracted also from foreign direct investment that came from Europe or that came from the United States. So, if we are to a certain extent a success story, how come we do not want others to manage the same? So what can be done in terms of financial flows? Well, this is the obvious and I think it has been said already. Uh, as you know, the new facilities that have been advertised by the IMF and the World Bank are rather undercommitted and, uh, and they do not represent very much new except for new labels and new titles. So to review conditionality and preconditionality one of the, the things that the IMF has managed to do is they say, well, I remove conditionality, but only for this list of countries, which anyway, they already comply. See, so, I mean, it's, it's a very cheap cheating, and, and I, I, I find myself pretty much enraged by that. In terms of midterm, how to make private flow sustainable. When you, when you have debts, and most of the debts today are not banked, loans, they are bonds. And so they have to reflect 
in terms of the contract that they are made under, the actual payment capacity and the variability in the income of those countries. See, you cannot have pretty much as, as we know in our in, on an individual basis, we, we cannot have you know, a fixed payment to make per month if we have a variable income. Yeah? However, we know as a matter of fact that most of the debt of low-income countries is pretty much like that. Yeah. Uganda does not know how much money it will make next year, but it does know how much it has to pay. What about that situation? So <clears throat> when you assess debt renegotiations, I understand that most of the IFIs and, and the rest of the OECD governments are very much you know, concerned about protecting their companies and their banks and, and their pension funds on which we all defend, depend sooner or later. But, uh, but it has to be balanced. It has to be balanced in order to, to protect the populations of low-income countries. And I, I think, as it was already mentioned, or it will be mentioned later in this conference, there is a need for an anti-shock facility. And uh, <clears throat> in terms of remittances, um, one minute, <laughs> OK. Uh, in terms of remittances, um, you know, there's plenty of cheating going around all the time. And uh, one of the most flagrant ones are, are how migrants and temporary foreign workers are cheated or social services and social safety nets uh, in, the, in the countries where, where they're working. I mean, uh, um, I have no, no qualms to say that uh, I have worked without papers in the US for quite some time, but I can tell you that it only costed me $15 to buy a social security number. That was real. And I did make social security contributions in the thousands of dollars to some unknown American person that I hope is She's uh, grateful to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I know that that is the situation of millions of, of temporary foreign workers and migrants all around the world. And we're talking about 150 million people from the south in the north. We're not talking about one million. So in terms of midterms, <clears throat> pressures, you know, upper-middle-income countries and, and uh, other, other, other uh, developing countries have to, you know, have to uh, set up their, their own responsibility on this. You know, the, the, the way migrant workers are treated in Malaysia or in Argentina or in Brazil or in Venezuela is dismal. And I think that they should be pressed to improve their ways. <clears throat> It's not that much the North can do on itself if it doesn't include those parts of the South that are in the middle. So I will, find, I will finish here. What can be done on aid? Pretty much, you know, just mop up your responsibility and act on it, you know. We have to stop trying to hide behind international declarations and international agreements and, and the idea that there has to be international cooperation and dialogue on how aid is going to be dispersed. We all know what the problem is. We all know how much we are part of that problem, too. And finally, I would just say that uh, returning to the, to the central point that we are finding through our research, it has to incorporate not only southern demands, but also southern realities. And aid has to be less of a place where we 
play out our speeches and our discourses and our, our uh, policy wishes that often are not even panning out at home uh, and, uh, and be something that actually helps the way low-income countries are actually saying they want to be helped. Thank you.